Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast, Italy wins. Hamilton votes against removing the statue of Sir John A. Do you hang with those that are not vaccinated? And would you fly into space? Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Man, I feel like I just got on a bicycle for the first time. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Congratulations to Italy winning Euro 2020. Hopefully my dad can now remove his skin-tight Italian flag shorts with the groin of the Statue of David strategically placed. Miss me? It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! You're not supposed to tell anybody about my shorts. It's kind of a personal thing, you know. What is going on here? All right, good afternoon. It is 12-11. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. Jump into the fun. We would love to hear from you. Lots of ways to do that. Send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Uh, Italy wins Euro 2020, beating England. I think a lot of people didn't see that coming necessarily. Gary Monroe is with us, soccer analyst for TSN and friend of CHML whenever it's time to talk soccer. He is with us now. Gary, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Afternoon, how are you? I'm doing well. Your thoughts on what we witnessed yesterday? Well, I think you uh, you said what I think a lot of people feel. You know, uh, I don't think a lot of people uh, wanted it to go to penalties or even, of course, uh, an England-Italy final. If you would have told everybody that at the beginning, I think a lot of people would have shaken their heads. But uh, listen, it was a great final. Uh, it was the icing on the cake for a fantastic tournament with all the good, bad, and scary things that happened. Uh, you never want to lose in penalties, but unfortunately, that's the way it is. And uh, for those that have been in big games and taken a penalty, uh, it's not the nicest feeling. But, of course, when you win it, you don't really care who on the other team misses at all. Uh, is this as big a controversy or debate in soccer or football as it is in hockey as far as the shootouts and the way to win these games? Well, listen, it's never going to change. Of course, it's been the modern game the past 20 to 30 years. You know, uh, pundits and people in the businesses and chairmen, etc. you know, how do you kind of uh, replace penalty kicks just because of the way people lose? You know, there's been a comparison, of course, as you said, to hockey, where you know, just let them play. But, you know, these guys, after 120 minutes, it's very difficult. You can tell... Either one team still got it a little bit and one team doesn't, or, you know, you make your five substitutions now and you, you could play. But listen, until somebody thinks of something better, it's penalty kicks. It's the way it is. It's the way it's all, it always has been. So I don't see it changing in the foreseeable future. Uh, unfortunately, there's always one guy that's, uh, well, in England's case, unfortunately, there was multiple guys that uh, are going to be uh, thought of as, as the donkey. But what are you going to do? Uh, your thoughts on the racist threats that some of them have received? Oh, the uh, it's absolutely disgusting, Scott. Uh, in this day and age, with everything going on and the efforts people are trying to do, um, you know, it's not everybody. It's always a couple uneducated Neanderthal idiot racists that are uh, picking on these on these young men. I mean, they're nineteen Saka who missed the last one. Is 19, so he's just a man. Uh, Rashford and Sancho, early 20s teenagers. It's disgusting yeah. to put it into a word. It's uncalled for. Unfortunately, uh, there's people still like that. And uh, you know what? They're only going to hurt their federation and their team because UEFA or FIFA, whenever it might happen, they're going to come down on this. You ban the fans. Uh, you ban booze, whatever you want to do. But uh, it's disgusting. I have to say that uh, the end of the game, if you go online and whatever medium it is, you're going to see a lot of fights and racially abused Italian supporters by England supporters. I, I, I have to say that uh, it's pretty consensus around the world that, uh, you know, win or lose, I think we were going to expect it. But I think UEFA should have done a better job kind of expecting this, especially with this final. 
How do you explain the way this sport will grip the world? I mean, every Italian community in every Canadian city sure. uh, across the country was going nuts. I mean, it, it's just amazing how this, you, you know, even going to a, like, like a Toronto FC game, it, it's sure. half the fun is watching the crowd. Yeah, absolutely, right? It's the atmosphere. It's uh, it's everything around you. I mean, I mean I- I'm biased, of course. It's the greatest sport in the world. I've been at World Cup games and uh, singing with the fans. And listen, if you've never been to a game, as you said, you've got to go, and you've got to start right in town with Hamilton Forge FC. Uh, they're two-time champions of the CPL. The atmosphere is fantastic. So times that by 100 when you're at a Euro game or possibly, you know, if you can get to Italy and see a city uh, or England, the, uh, the Premier League. But um, the whole community is great. I mean, I was talking to my... Uh, my buddy Vince Michelli, he's president of the Hamilton Soccer Hall of Fame and uh, has been for a few years. I mean, his posts are great. I mean, everybody's posting on their jerseys. And, of course, as we know, Scott, James Street, I'm sure, was closed at, uh, about yeah. 20 minutes past, uh, past penalty kicks yesterday. And you can see it brings people together. That's what the game does, and, and that's what it should do. You won't see a lot of people down at James Street, uh, you know, not smiling and there's not going to be any crap down there. I mean, it just, it's a feel good story. Anything in a major tournament, no matter what the sport brings people together. And, uh, and that's the way it should be. So congrats to Italy for sure. They were fantastic and England should be proud of what they did as well. Uh, unfortunately with the media in England, they're going to be scrutinized out of control. And of course, a fantastic tournament and great players will be overshadowed by a bunch of, uh, bunch of idiots uh in this racism thing you know they want to sell newspapers and that's the tagline they're gonna they're gonna go for unfortunately well the great thing is the uh, uh internet is filled with uh, all kinds of uh, people celebrating on james street and uh, waving the flags and showing yeah, the colors absolutely. and just having a great old time and uh that is what's so great about this sport is how it does bring people together and party gary monroe with his soccer analyst for tsn italy winning euro 2020 beating england in the final gary thanks so much for the time be well thank you very much have a great afternoon in a vote of 12 to 3, City Council defeated a motion to take down the statue amid calls to remove it from Hamilton's Indigenous residents. Mayor Fred Eisenberger says he's concerned removing the Gore Park statue would create further division in the city. The, the, the path to reconciliation is through consultation and collaboration not through destruction of uh, artifacts and monuments. Ward 1 Councillor Maureen Wilson, one of the three who voted in favor of taking it down, says this would have been the easiest thing the city could do to listen to the Indigenous community. If we are serious about moving towards reconciliation, then we must center the feelings, needs and calls of Indigenous peoples. Councillors did unanimously approve a review of the city's 200 landmarks and monuments, which includes the McDonald statue. Lisa Paleski, 900 CHML News. All right, let's bring in Dr. Don LaBelle, Harvard president of the Ontario Native Women's Association, director of Trent University, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Uh, very well, thank you. So, Don, we have talked about this uh, in the past, and, and, and since we have last uh, talked, Hamilton City Council has voted against removing uh, the statue of, of uh, Sir John A. Macdonald uh, downtown and instead uh, going further with a study in regard to all of, uh, I guess, these sites across the city. How does the country move forward with the statue debate? Where, where do we start here? Well, I've actually given this a lot of thought because when, you know, the conversations initially started under the Trudeau government, the renaming of buildings, I was admittedly a little concerned about sort of whitewashing our Canadian history by, you know, eliminating these historical figures who were responsible for genocide. And then someplace, you know, 50, 100 years from now, young people, you know, wouldn't even have that concept of, of this ever having existed. And, you know, much like there are Holocaust deniers out there. But, you know, recently when we, we look at what has happened, we look at the discovery of mass graves of Indigenous children, you know, we have to finally open our eyes to the fact that we cannot continue to celebrate and idolize somebody who was the founder, the perpetrator, you know, the founder of the residential school system, which was 
an act of genocide. You know, they conducted medical experiments. How do we continue to hold up somebody like this as a hero to our nation? And, you know, I understand the sentiment that, you know, simply removing the statues isn't going to change Canadian society, but continuing to protect them is, it's, it's continuing to protect this false history of, of Canada. Uh, I'm going to play devil's advocate here, uh, Don. Are we using these symbols as a scapegoat? It makes us feel better uh, as non-Indigenous people to take them down. Um, and therefore, if we take them down, we are solving the issue, forgetting that, you know, this happened right up until uh, the 1970s, and it was Canadians who voted for these leaders. How can we blame these leaders and not ourselves? How can we not, how can we take down statues and remove names and not do the same for our own ancestry? Well, I think this is a fun, absolutely, it is a bit of a scapegoat, but it is a first step. I mean, by suggesting that, you know, simply taking down these statues is a simple checkbox. Yes, it is. But defending these statues, defending, yeah. you know, the memory of Sir John A. Macdonald, in my mind, would be akin to defending the memory of Hitler and suggesting that, you know, we should maintain Hitler's statues because we don't want to, you know, he, he it could be argued, you know, as people did, that, you know, five years after the war, 50% of Germans felt that Hitler was one of Germany's greatest leaders if it wasn't for the war, and that Nazism had been a good idea, but it was badly applied. So you can compare those direct same kind of comments to the residential school system, where people argue that residential school system was a well-intentioned idea that went badly wrong, that it was not, you know, implemented well. And so, yeah, taking down scapegoats is an easy way for people to feel good. But not taking them down is continuing to protect the memory of somebody who committed genocide against Indigenous peoples and continuing to perpetrate a false history of Canada. Uh, what about telling the other side of that story, the other side of that history, as opposed to eliminating one? Well, I, I think absolutely they do have to. And again, you know, if we look at if we look at what happened in Germany, we look at, you know, the massive amount of education that went in education programs that went into telling the story of all of the victims. I think that's absolutely critical. And I think to your earlier point, yes, eliminating statues really does very, very little for existing Indigenous people. And yes, it would actually be really imperative that we start focusing on how do we make changes in current legislation, in current policies, in current education systems and child welfare systems to ensure that this current generation of Indigenous children is allowed to and supported to to achieve their potential in a way that those children who were victimized weren't, absolutely, we need to do better. But again, we can't protect, you know, these these false memories. Because Um, we don't want to face that history. So is it about the story or the statues? Well, and I guess that's the thing, is can you separate the two? And I think that's a fundamental question, is can we continue to hold up statues of people like Lord Cornwall in Nova Scotia who, you know, implemented bounties where settlers could be could receive 10 pounds British sterling or eventually 50 pounds for killing an Indigenous person and showing up with their scalp. They were, you know, scalping bounties. I mean, do we continue to celebrate those kind of people by suggesting that, well, there is another side to their identity. They did some really good things. And, I mean, again, if we look at the context of Nazi Germany, that would be a fundamentally absurd assertion and yet when we look just to the immediate south of us and we look at the united states i mean they're currently going through they they still have statues of robert e lee you know a a general who was a traitor against his own country and fought for white supremacy and the you know perpetuation of slavery and you see people still rallying against him as, as a popular hero and that always continues to be a possibility so long as a society we are not facing the truth about Sir John A. Macdonald. I mean, which is actually really weird for me because my great-great-grandfather on my father's side was actually quite good friends with Sir John A. Macdonald and they lived across the street from each other, you know, uh, Dr. Michael Laval in Kingston. So this is not an abstract concept for me. And, and I'm not saying that he's a demon. What I'm saying is that we cannot valorize and turn into heroes people who perpetrated genocide. Why is the friend not a demon but, the, but John A. is? 
Well, I think that's the point, is we need to yeah. not say that Sir John A. was a demon. And that's where people get sliding into, you know, he wasn't a demon. But we cannot hold up perpetrators of genocide as heroes. And right. I think that's where, you know, creating, valorizing them and celebrating them is distinctly different from demonizing. And, and you made a really good point. People kept voting for them, again, but Canada has a really good history of hiding its treatment of Indigenous peoples from the general Canadian population. The majority of Canadians, I'm sure, have never been to a First Nations reserve, have never seen the third world conditions that Indigenous people are living in, in the middle of one of the richest countries of the world, because they had excellent policies for ensuring that the average Canadian never saw that and was not aware. But Sir uh, John is does the indigenous community view the statue or the name of John A. Macdonald the same way the black community would the Confederate flag in the United States? I think after finding these many, many, you know, mass graves of children, absolutely. I think a lot of indigenous people, myself included, have have come face to face with something that we had not really taken a hard stand on before. And, and I, I do think now that, yes, absolutely, how do you not conclude and, and see him in that same light after we find that he created, advocated, and perpetuated the residential school system after his own people, his own doctor who he hired to go out and you know, investigate the residential schools, uh, it was the Bryce report, came back and told him of the conditions and told him that, you know, 50% of those kids won't survive because of the conditions. And Sir John A. said, they look fine to me. And so he consciously and knowingly perpetuated this system that was killing off, you know, obviously thousands of Indigenous children. And, and that, that's a big difference. That's not somebody who didn't know what was happening as part of a, a larger bureaucracy. He was, and unfortunately, you know, Bryce, the, the author of the Bryce Report, uh, was blackballed and his, his career destroyed for telling the truth about what was happening at the residential schools, uh, you know, a very inconvenient truth for the Canadian government. If that's so, is it not just a matter of time before they all are removed? Well, I would have to get into, and I, don't know, I, I would have to look at, you know, when we say all, we mean who all. Well, for example, very- well, well, for example, you know, Kingston removed its statue of John A. Hamilton has left it up. Um, why one and not the other? Uh, are you surprised that it was left up? Um, I would actually be really curious to have seen what the people of the city of Hamilton would currently say if they had conducted some sort of you know, educational conversation, town halls, and, and, and maybe they did, but I'm not aware of, and, and some kind of referendum to see if the voting of the town council reflects the you know, improved awareness, the, the current feeling, the, um, the feeling of, of the people of Hamilton. Um, I'd be very curious, you know, because how do we have one city that recognize, after everything that's happened, the problems of celebrating the perpetrators of genocide, and another city just ignore it? Uh, the mayor said uh, he was worried that this would create further division, that it's more about education than, than the destruction of history. Well, and, and I think that's the thing. You know, again, so let's look at education. Let's look at what the community actually feels about this. Because a lot of times as leadership, you know, we are afraid to step into something contentious uh, because we're functioning from understandings, attitudes, and behaviors of of previous generations, of the times we grew up in, or of even, you know, the Canada that we were six months ago. And I think that's something that the leadership in Hamilton is missing. And, and I said, you know, as an Indigenous person myself, I can tell you a few years ago, I was, you know, sort of on the fence of this. I was a little bit hesitant to say that, you know, we should be removing statues and renaming all these buildings um, for fear of whitewashing Canadian history. But, you know, given the atrocities that we have found, I think, you know, mass graves of, of children can and should change that conversation for a lot of people. And I think city councils maybe need to take the pulse of their constituents to see if what they thought held true six months ago still holds true now as people understand. Because there's, I mean, people that I never would have thought 
before um, an old man, an elderly gentleman and his wife, you know, came to our vigil in Peterborough and, and literally in tears and said, you know, we, we literally thought about what if that was one of our children yeah. in there. And, and I think Canadian society, now that our eyes are opened, you know, we need to stop the knee-jerk reactions and take an honest pulse of what is the right thing to do. How do we educate? I mean, you, how do you educate? It, it's the same debate about Ryerson, you know, as my daughter pointed out. Yeah. I would not want a degree from Hitler U. Wow. And I was, you know, she's 12. And I thought, okay, if a 12-year-old kid can see that, maybe we all need to take a breath, stop with the knee-jerk reactions of protecting what we thought was, you know, a societal Canadian hero, and actually assess what legacy we're celebrating here and what that says about our values as Canadians and as human beings. Uh, obviously started with John A. MacDonald. Uh, Pierre Trudeau uh, opened the last uh, schools. Um, Pierre or Trudeau Airport, does, does that be re- name removed? You know, again, let's look into the legacy of of, you know, what and why these people made these decisions. I think for me with Sir John A., one of the most fundamental deciding factors is when his own person that he hired to go and do a report came back and said, these schools are killing these kids. You know, 50% of them will not get through. Soldiers in the Second World War had a better chance of survival than these kids in these schools. And Sir John A. basically came back with, they look fine to me. You know, that, that that's a particular kind of choice to knowingly consciously perpetrate genocide and and you know his his opinions that were very clearly about you know to kill the indian and the child and that if it meant we killed some actual children along the way that he saw this as some sort of acceptable collateral damage sort of casualties of of his project that's that is just impossible to reconcile and and it was it's the knowing of it the conscious knowing of what they were doing that that i think changes the conversation i don't know enough to know about trudeau's you know he he participated in the same thing you know, maybe and, you know start you, you having ta- conversations about him too i'm not going to well, protect him and defend him until I, I get you know some some backstory on on all of it absolutely you were saying John A., you know, his own people were telling him what was going on there. By the 1970s, I, I think most politicians know what was going on there. Most leaders know knew what was going on and continuing it. So is it worse to start it or worse to continue going with it, you know, 100 years later? I, I wouldn't lose any sleep if they renamed Trudeau Airport. I'll be, glad to be honest with you. I guess my point here in all of this is where does it end? Where does it stop? Right. And, and that's true. And that is very true. And I think what needs to happen, and, and I, I do think that, you know, some of the, the Hamilton counselors at least have an understanding of that, that there absolutely needs to be education. But we do need to do a reevaluation of, of the people that we are holding up as heroes and, and understanding, you know, what kinds of things we're holding up to celebrate here. And where does it stop? You know, you're right. There's lots of people that participated in this system from beginning to end. And, you know, when we think about the fact that this, the residential schools, you know, they, they knowingly conducted medical experiments on Indigenous children for, to see the effects of starvation. They deliberately, knowingly starved Indigenous children and, you know, to see what kind of effects they could have for, you know, giving them different treatments after the fact. I mean, again, where else in the world have we seen people who conduct medical experiments and see it rationalized as being the bet on certain populations and, and see it written off as in the benefits of science for the larger population? You know, we really, really need to open our eyes and, and have a better understanding of the role that certain of our heroes have played in this. And, and I think until we do that, this is always going to be a problem. But your original point is a really important one that we can't get too focused on toppling statues and not actually doing anything to change the circumstances of the current generation of Indigenous children who are still suffering from discrimination in the education system and child welfare. It's you know, a I, I, distraction. I, 
I'll look about it. Here's my own personal take on this, Don. Um, as a guy in his 50s, uh, totally ignorant to all of this, uh, had my own thoughts and stereotypes, which I'm now ashamed of. This has certainly drawn light and shone light on on all of this. Uh, my my position on the statues, I, I'm still undecided. I don't know. I don't know enough yet to, to make a decision there. Um, but what I'm seeing is a lot of knee-jerk reaction for people who don't like feeling as uncomfortable as I am right now. So the, the, you know, the, the reaction is to lash out and do this, as opposed to let's just stop and listen for a minute, <laughs> as well, opposed to just trying to react to make us feel better. Absolutely. Um, and I 100% do not agree with toppling of statues and burning of churches. I mean, I can understand the impulse. But I don't agree with it. It's not right. You know, as they say, two wrongs don't make a right. But, yeah, I, I, none of us like the uncomfortable feeling. And, and I think that the knee-jerk destruction is not good. But a considered process of examining yeah. who our heroes are, what roles they played, and how we respond in terms of telling the truth about our history in Canada and, and this, this chapter of genocide, is going to be important, but we can't shut it down. We have to go through that process. And yeah, we have to hold off on the knee-jerk reactions while we consciously engage with that, that process of, of educating ourselves, of understanding what happened here, and, edu- and understanding what it is we are going to stand up for and protect, and, and because that becomes really critical. Dr. Don LaBelle, Harvard with us, president of the Ontario Native Women's Association, director of Trent University. Don, as always, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. We'll chat again. All right. Take care. We got a caller. I believe Dave is on the line. Dave, your thoughts? Hey, Scott. Welcome back. Um, thank you. My vacation this week, um, so I'm no longer jealous of you. Um, yeah, I was, I was surprised they voted not to take it down. However, uh, I wonder sometimes if we're not doing these guys uh, um, like the guys like McDonald and uh, whoever you might want to mention a favor by erasing them from history. Perhaps there should be two story, two narratives told here. Good point. And, uh, you know, I, I think this is something that has to be thought out. I think it's something that has to be debated. And I think we have to hear uh, information from all sides of this before uh, we make a knee jerk reaction uh, and understand. But I certainly can understand that this would have as much impact to the indigenous community as, say, a Confederate flag does to the black community. Uh, and, 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 and that certainly increases the understanding. Dave, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Yep. Here is today's daily commentary. Now that Canada is in mass vaccination mode and the vast majority of Canadians have received at least one shot of COVID-19 vaccine, the next burning question among the citizenry as we open up is, have you been vaccinated? We all know we have the right to do as we please within the law of the land, but that does not necessarily mean everyone participates or does the right thing or even can. So who gets to participate in life and who does not? And who decides? I know anecdotally of parents who don't want their kids hanging out with those kids not vaccinated, especially indoors. I personally gave up a great massage therapist of 20 years because I don't feel comfortable in a healthcare environment with someone who is not vaccinated. So just as it is a person's right not to be vaccinated, it is also a person's right not to include them. Hesitancy is already creating a whole new conversation and debate in a post-pandemic world. I'm Scott Thompson. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, Alyssa PR, pop culture and PR expert and is with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am and hope you're doing well too, Scott. So we're into, in an inter, at an interesting point now, considering uh, we are having the numbers that we have with vaccination over 50% or close to 50%, I should say, with their second dose, uh, well over 75%, I believe, with the first dose of those that are eligible uh, to do so. Uh, now the discussion becomes one of hesitancy and hanging out with those who are unvaccinated. And, you know, over the weekend, I saw an article on healthcare workers and, uh, uh, how there is a, a higher than average hesitancy rate among the healthcare industry. How do you handle the, the the conversation of have you been vaccinated or not? Is this a question you should be asking your friends before you socialize? 
oh, I think it's already happening. Uh, you know, we have friends who uh, are saying, gee, you know, we want to have some people over or do you want to come over? But are you back? Are you doubled? Yeah. And not only that is, but when you talk about getting together, we're all, it's, it's the first words out of our mouths. I'm double vaccinated. I'm double vaccinated. So I think that people are already using it as a bit of a calling card to say, listen, I'm safe. It's safe for us to get together. Um, I care about you. You obviously care about me. So the whole notion of bringing up that conversation about are you double vaccinated, I think is happening organically among family and friends. But you raise a good point. I mean, healthcare workers, should we be able to ask them? And I say, absolutely. Uh, I'll tell you a personal antidote. Uh, I've been going to the same registered massage therapist for like 20 years. Absolutely love her. Uh, and has, uh, you know, just, uh, I've been very impressed with, with, uh, her professionalism and everything she does and her, and most importantly, her knowledge. Uh, you, you could literally uh, lie on the table and not even tell her what was going on, and she'd find out where the problem was in your shoulder or your arm or wherever. Um, just before going on holiday, uh, how are you? How are you doing? Everything, you know, da da da. Before I, I get on the table, and well, my arm's a little sore because I got the second vaccine. The va- vaccine discussion comes up, and uh, she's not vaccinated. Husband's not vaccinated. Who's a teacher? Uh, two kids who are teenagers aren't vaccinated, and I, I never thought much of it. Then driving home and getting a call for this, for, you know, to book another appointment, I'm thinking I just don't feel comfortable in a healthcare environment with someone who is not vaccinated. And I, I sent that note, and I'm gone. I'm I'm dropped. She, you know, I said if it changes, let me know. But I felt really bad. It was like I was breaking up with somebody. But I, I just didn't feel comfortable. Well, you know, turn that conversation on its head. And here she is. She's uh, obviously a massage therapist. Obviously, she's using her hands. She's in close quarters. And and with others. And others. And she's seeing lots and lots of clients. And, yeah, she's probably being, you know, maybe she says she's eating right. Maybe she says she's being very, very clean and, and whatnot and, and sanitizing. And But, you know, this is airborne. You know, I, I think that we're past the sort of, no, we're past it, but... Uh, you know, the whole surface um, uh, bit with with COVID, but people are more worried about the airborne. So if this massage therapist isn't really concerned is about how you feel or her clientele feels, unfortunately, you got to go see a new massage therapist. And while you feel bad, aren't they feeling bad? That's what I have to wonder. And I understand that, you know, some people do have hesitancy. I understand that uh, people think, well, you know, there's not been enough testing. But proof is in the pudding, people. The numbers are way down. The deaths are almost non-existent. Vaccination works. It's the reason we get vaccinated as babies. Vaccinations work. So you can tell yourself all sorts of stories. You can tell yourself, you know, talk yourself out of or into or out of almost anything. But, you know, you might be at the, in a position now to say, well, I'm not going to get a vaccine until maybe you want to go travel to see a relative in another country. Yeah. And they honestly don't care because many countries are going to be having that vaccine passport. So like it or not, I hope that that's coming. I guess I was just surprised because you hear people stereotype, oh, it's only the alt-right that are not, uh, don't believe in vaccination. And, and this person clearly on the opposite polar, a uh, polar opposite political spectrum, uh, degrees hanging on the wall. I, I just, it caught me by surprise. It would, I thought the last person to be hesitancy considering the knowledge here. Well, you know, this is it. And I have to tell you, it really gives my head a shake. I was listening to a radio program and people are saying why they're not going to get the vaccine. So one guy comes in, he says, well, you can't mix the two mRNA vaccines. Well, yes, you can. My wife is a public health nurse and she's pregnant and she's not going to get the vaccine. Well, if she's a public health nurse, she can obviously read a study and she should know that as someone who is pregnant, you can get the vaccine. So people still have their own hesitancies, which basically are just maybe born out of fear, not necessarily born out of knowledge or born out of hearsay. And they hold on to them. And in many cases, you can't do anything about it. I was reading a commentary on Instagram about, you know, I've had somebody in the States. I've had cookouts with 30 plus people in my family and we're fine and we're not masking anymore. and We're not even all going to get vaccinated. Oh, okay. So when one of you have, when you have your cookout and one of them happens to be carrying uh, the virus and then you all get infected, is that what it's going to take? 
So the vaccine hesitancy makes me think, and you know, we're already starting to see this, how the government is reworking their messages on mainstream media in order to speak to those groups that may well yeah. be hesitant. Uh, I mean, we're seeing this separate family, friends, um, you know, uh, again, anecdotally, I know uh, a situation where, you, you know, a kid's inviting kids over to his house, a couple of kids over to the house, uh, but they have a daughter there that's under the age of 12 that hasn't been vaccinated. So the parents are saying, if you're not been vaccinated, you can't come over. So there's this kid that hasn't been vaccinated that's now out. I mean, how do you, how do you go with that? I understand that. And first of all, there's no vaccinations right now for kids under under 12. Exactly. So what do you do about that? That's not for lack of willingness. That's just for people sort of setting their own boundaries. And what can you do about it? Nothing. Um, it's just how those people feel. And unfortunately, that is going to, you know, ostracize some people and some kids. So I, I think that there soon will be a vaccine for, you know, kids that are younger you know, the uptake in Canada, when you just started off the program with those stats, Scott, I mean, honestly, those are the, obviously the latest ones you're reading. And I'm sitting there shaking my head thinking, good grief, the compliance in Canada is great. It's massive, you know, yeah. It really is. And what I see is that people who don't have the vaccine going, well, you know, we'll have herd immunity so I can sort of slip under the wire there. Well, not with the variant. And people don't want to know about the variant. I've worked in healthcare communications long enough, Scott, to know that people don't want to know about bad news. They just don't want to hear about it. I used to work for the Heart and Stroke Foundation for many years. And when you talk about heart disease, people could get their heads around that because there were fixes. You could get a bypass. You could eat better. You could stop smoking. But when you talked about stroke, people tuned out because hmm. people did not want to know about what it was like to live with a stroke. So I understand why people are, you know, hesitant and don't want to any longer maybe look into the news about the variant. But New South Wales in Australia is locked down right now, and they are locked down because of the Delta variant. So you can ignore the news, you can ignore the facts, or if you don't trust news sources, then I'm, I'm not sure what more you know, uh, you can trust. But uh, this is why you see government ads bringing in different spokespeople. They're bringing them in now of different ethnicities, um, which is smart, which is smart. So I am looking forward to seeing how they're going to get around that hesitancy, because just getting the shot or doing it for my mom or doing it for my friend or doing it for myself is no longer going to be enough for this particular cohort. Many think, you know, talked about government passports and how this is going to work and government making decisions and da-da-da-da-da. I think this is the people's discussion, and and people have, have, have decided to make this uh, an issue, and you see this on social media, even between members of, of the same family. You know, no, you can't come visit me until you're vaccinated uh, sort, of, uh, sort of thing. How do you start this conversation with a family member, with a friend, who you're going to end up at odds with? I think that you just have to be really clear and, you know, just phone them up or have that conversation. Obviously, you're not going to go over because if they're not vaccinated, you're not having this conversation face to face. But just say, listen, you need to know where I stand on this. And we believe in vaccinations um, We because we believe in the science. We see that the numbers are going down and we are starting to recirculate as opposed to just sitting at home. So, listen. Um, I, maybe you are not going to get a vaccine, but you need to know what that means in your relationship with us. And that's how you have to say it. You don't wait until, or maybe you do wait, and, you know, if you don't get an invite, the invite to the wedding, well, how come they're inviting me? You're not vaccinated. Well, what difference does that make? It means it makes all the difference. So I think that there's going to be a lot of those conversations happening in the very near future, if not already. You know, if you've only got 50 or 60 percent of the population vaccinated, this conversation becomes very, very vague because you don't really know because, all you know, the politics gets into it. Oh, there's a portion of the population that we're ignoring. We're seeing inequities here. Well, as we as we have 75 percent of people with the first dose, you can say maybe five percent of that, uh, maybe five to 10 percent of that is due to inequities and, and, and literally going, you know, door to door with a syringe in your hand vaccinating people but the rest of that the other 10 15 percent of that is hesitancy yeah 
It is. And that's, it and that's really is. going to show its head as we vaccinate more and more people. It's going to show who's not going to get vaccinated. And we're going to really define, because lots of people can't, uh, there's lots of reasons for people who, not to do it, but that number is going to get smaller and smaller as time goes on. Well, it will. Hopefully that number will get smaller and smaller as time goes on. And it'll get smaller because they want to go see a concert, because they want to travel, because they finally decided, well, if I want to see these relatives, maybe I'm going to have to do this. Or they become more comfortable with the science, or they decide that they look at the numbers and the numbers of, of cases and deaths are going way, way down. So I, I think the proof is in the pudding for a lot of people. Um, you know, maybe we have to start when the government puts out these numbers that are saying, um, oh, we only had this number of cases this, this weekend or this week and zero deaths. And this is because people are getting vaccinated. So yeah. you know, maybe the government, when they put out the, it starts at the very beginning, Scott. It's not just for the news to interpret it. And I'm not sure why the government isn't doing this already, but you've got to draw the link. You have to show people, you have to take people down the path with you that says, since we have increased uh, vaccination, especially in these hotspots, they are no longer hotspots. I mean, even look at something like, use a test case like Waterloo, which wasn't allowed to move into the the next phase because their, their, their incidences were still going up. And I think a lot of it was Delta. So look at that. Once you get that population uh, under control, perhaps with vaccinations, watch those numbers. So use these test cases, not just here, but also abroad, to tell people the story. You really need to start the story at the very beginning and not leave it necessarily always up to people to draw the conclusions. Create, Put the information out, out for them, and then it's all about whether they believe it or not, and hopefully they do. Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert, talking about vaccine hesitancy as over or almost 50% of Canadians have their second dose and only 114 new cases in Ontario and the second time reporting zero deaths, which is great news. Alyssa, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. And you too, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Feel free to email us, Scott Thompson at 900chml.com, as Tavares did, saying, Scott, you just told everybody on air that you went to a massage parlor. No, I didn't. (laughs) Tavares is uh, confusing rub and tugs with a registered massage therapist that, uh, you know, is part of a therapy treatment for a ailment in your muscles of some sort. Um, uh, not necessarily what Tavares is thinking. And, and, and I said that to him, but he thought I should clarify that on the air. So it is done. Uh, and thank you for the guidelines, Tavares. Uh, feel free to offer your opinion like he did. We would love to hear from you. All right. Uh, pretty spectacular, uh, over the weekend watching, uh, Virgin's Galact- uh, Virgin Galactic's Richard Branson, uh, take off in his own craft. And uh, go up and, and uh, hover around the Earth's atmosphere for just a bit and uh, then come back down. And many people are just, uh, again, astounded by this technology and how we can do this and the opportunities that are afforded some very rich. And others are looking at it like, you know, this is just an ego. Uh, this is just an ego thing between a pile of billionaires trying to get there first. Uh, let's bring in Paul Delaney, space exploration expert, professor of astronomy and physics, York University, and is with us now. Paul, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am indeed, Scott. Glad to be with you. So your thoughts on what we all witnessed over the weekend with uh, Virgin and, and Richard Branson uh, up in space are certainly knocking the edge of it. Well, I was very excited. I mean, not I was excited not just for him, but for me, for the opportunities that this in the not-too-distant future is going to afford people like you and me. We can't afford to do it at the moment, or at least I don't think you can. I can't. <laughs> but give it a few years, and not very many years, that price is going to tumble, and the opportunity for you and I to experience weightlessness, to observe the Earth in you know, a spectacular fashion, I'm very excited over those possibilities. I really am. 
We've talked about this uh, at length over the years, Paul, many times. Uh, I, I found something fascinating watching the clip of of uh, uh, Branson in space and and him saying, this isn't about me, this is about the kids that are watching and have uh, a dream similar to what he did back in, in a kid, as a kid, watching the space race of the 60s, I guess, and saying one day he'd like to do that. And now kids watching Richard Branson uh, do that. Uh, and, and yet, on the other hand, we have those that are saying, my goodness, we have uh, poverty in the world and la, 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 and we shouldn't be spending our money on this. Again, point to the advantages of these sort of experiments. Well, I mean, it's it's private money that is doing this. Uh, you know, the Earth and, and humanity has its issues. There's no question in the world about that. I doubt Branson is going to solve those. Uh, it needs to be, you know, on a very different level than what Branson is doing. But what he has allowed uh, us the opportunity, and I do mean the, the global us, is to be able to go into space. And, you know, in a similar way, so too is Elon Musk. When we look about it, when we look back over the last 60 years, astronauts have been a relatively elite group of people, generally speaking, aviators, uh, people who have gone through immense training, have gone up to do a job in space. Well, we're now looking at the opportunity for people to go into space, not to do a job, but as part of, of leisure, as part of tourism. The development of the technology that is involved here is not just for the tourist trade. There is a huge science component associated with this technology to be able to deliver research into an out-of-Earth orbit, into and out of the upper reaches of the Earth's atmosphere. It's a commercial endeavor. There's no question in the world about that. But it's not just aimed at tourism, but you and I will be able to capitalize, if you will, on the tourist aspect of it. And let's face it, tourism is something that this planet utilizes hugely. There are regions on this planet that don't survive without the tourist dollar. Space tourism is going to be, I suspect, very, very similar. So talk about the process here of this flight and, and, and the actual flight itself. Take us through this. I understand it was about 90 minutes. Give or take. Um, it's, it's very much like walking into an airport initially and getting on a plane, and, and they're billing it that way. So they strap themselves into an aircraft. It was called VSS Unity. It's a six-passenger affair, two pilots, four passengers. And then they are strapped onto uh, what they call a carrier aircraft, uh, affectionately referred to as the mothercraft, VMS Eve in this case, named after Richard Branson's mother. Uh, and Eve carries Unity to an altitude of about 15 kilometers. The advantage there, of course, is that Unity doesn't have to do anything. It's just a passenger, so to speak. And so they save its fuel, they save its energy, and so they fly to 15 kilometers and then Eve drops Unity. And about two seconds after that drop, Unity lights its rocket engine. So it. So the the, the, the craft that takes it up there is eliminating the need for solid rocket boosters and all of that effect. That's exactly right, and increases the reusability because again, you know, the the carrier aircraft Eve is is truly just an aircraft, so it uh, doesn't need refurbishing or anything. It just does the legwork for the first fifteen kilometers of your journey into space. And so it allows Unity to drop at an altitude of 15 kilometers. Now Unity transforms itself from being a plane into being a rocket. So it lights its rocket engine. It's about a two-minute burn. It's not much more than that. It, you get to around about three gravitational acceleration, so a 3G force. You and I can handle that. That's not terribly stressful. And after two minutes, the rocket engine cuts out. You are then... Uh, coasting to what we call apogee. So you're in the upper reaches of the Earth's atmosphere. The rocket engine cuts out at something like 60, 65 kilometers above the surface of the Earth. And the next 15 kilometers, it coasts under its own momentum to an apogee, a maximum height of about 80 to 85 kilometers, above what NASA recognizes to be the point at which anybody traveling at those heights is considered an astronaut. In those three, four minutes, you get to be weightless, you get fabulous views of the Earth, you know, the curvature of the Earth, the blackness of space, or deep purple as they're referring to it. Uh, and then while you're enjoying yourselves, the pilots are reorienting the, uh, the space plane into a configuration because, of course, gravity is going to pull you back down. You don't have the speed to, uh, to attain orbit. And now after you reach apogee, you begin to head back towards the Earth. You transition back into the atmosphere. Everybody's now strapped back in. 
and the vehicle, Unity, acts like a glider and comes back and lands at the airport, Spaceport America, and everybody gets off just like you do at an airport. That whole <laughs> process is about 90 minutes, 40, uh, 75 to 90 minutes. So when this craft l- lands, it's, it's under, it has no power. It's gliding. It's, it's just like the shuttle was. Okay, yeah. The shuttle falls out of orbit, so to speak, and glided to a runway, uh, and that was that. Same thing happens for Unity. All right, let's talk about the mothership that takes this off, which basically looks like two planes fastened together. <laughs> That's a pretty close analogy. That's exactly right. Design- and, and each one, in each in each fuselage requires a pilot. So, uh, uh, are are those astronauts, former astronauts, test pilots? Yeah, or is that just like flying a seven forty seven? Well, I wouldn't say it's exactly like flying a seven forty seven. Uh, my understanding is that the pilots who were in Eve are incredibly experienced. We're talking about three to 4,000 flying hours. Each of them has flown somewhere between 50 and 100 differing uh, uh, aircraft. I think they can fly Unity. They're trained to fly on Unity, and so therefore they will at some point have the opportunity to become astronauts. The two who were flying EVE on Sunday, though, I don't think have flown into space but have been part of the Virgin Galactic process for many, many years. Very, very experienced pilots, but not necessarily, quote, astronauts. So what's it like for them to take EVE to that height? Because that would be higher than the average passenger plane would be going. That's right. When you and I are flying to Europe or where have you, uh, we, we end up flying at around about 10 kilometers worth of altitude, between 10 and 12 kilometers. That's a pretty standard height. Uh, for uh, intercontinental uh, air traffic these days. So EVE definitely is able to go higher than that. Uh, fighter aircraft are able to go higher than that, and certainly there are some NASA research aircraft that fly at those altitudes. Obviously, the higher you can go, the better it is for Unity because you know it's just that little bit closer to space. But as far as EVE is concerned, uh, it's still flying in the aerodynamic aspect of the Earth's atmosphere. So it, it's just like a very uh, a modified high-altitude aircraft, and I'm, I'm sure it's fun to fly. You know, the, the, the pilots, when they get off, you know, they're beaming from ear to ear, and you know, they haven't gone to space. They've just been out for days flying. They, they seem to enjoy themselves. So when um, uh, the craft drops off the mothership or EVE, and then uh, two, uh, two minutes later it ignites, or two, two seconds, seconds later, left. sorry, it ignites, yeah. and then that rocket burns for two minutes, taking them up to space. Is, is that what you said, yeah. accurate? That's exactly right. They, they reach speeds of around about Mark 3, so that's about three times the uh, speed of sound, give or take a bit, about 3,000, 2,500, 3,000 kilometers per hour. So they're moving along, there's no question, but to get into orbit, you need to uh, attain speeds that are in the vicinity of 16,000, 17,000 kilometers an hour. So they're nowhere near the energy required to get into orbit. And the Virgin Galactic has never, never tried to do that. That's the, the purview, if you will, of SpaceX. <laughs> Uh, that was my next question. The difference between all of these companies, because this is sort of being, you know, uh, sold as a billionaire space race, but these are very much different crafts with different purposes. Is that accurate? Um, the, the purposes overlap. Uh, they're certainly very different crafts. When you compare Virgin Galactic to Blue Origin to SpaceX, they have developed three quite distinct technologies, complementary technologies in many ways, but they are very distinct. And that's why it's taken them all, you know, the better part of 17 years to mature to this point. Uh, SpaceX got that maturity much earlier. They've been flying the Falcon 9 very successfully uh, since, you know, 2009, and they're now up to 120 flights. You know, Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin, nowhere near that. But all three are looking at uh, the, 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 the commercial model, the fiscal model, that basically says, People want to be able to get to the edge of space for research purposes as well as for space tourism. We want to get into low Earth orbit for satellite communications uh, and, again, research uh, potential. And we want to be able to deliver payloads into geosynchronous orbit for you know, telecommunication. There is money to be made in the billions of dollars every year. That's why you see the Japanese Space Agency, the European Space Agency, the Indian Space Agency, the Chinese Space Agency. There are so many different groups out there now, both government as well as private, that are launching on almost a weekly basis. There is a phenomenal investment in the space, uh, the, the space environment.
Uh, right now, as you mentioned, the tourism is to the edge of space uh, and then back down. Is this going to eventually mean, for example, a stay at the International Space Station? Uh, it certainly will be. In fact, the inspiration for flight in October is uh, into Earth orbit with a Dragon-Falcon uh, combination. So this will be the first tourist flight, purely tourist flight, by SpaceX. They are not going to the International Space Station on this flight. They'll just be orbiting the Earth for three or four days for individuals. But next year, you will see Dragon, through a group called Space Adventures, fly to the International Space Station with tourists, uh, and they will stay on the International Space Station for anywhere from seven to ten days, and then they will deorbit. So you are going to see SpaceX in the tourism business starting, as I say, in October of this year and next year to the International Space Station. I wonder if they're going to build a tourist suite onto the International Space Station, you know, something with a big panoramic view or, uh, you know, maybe a hot tub. I don't know. Is Like, will they just have a role up there or will they just be sitting at the table? Uh, well, I mean, they will have a role, but it, it's a contrived role, shall we say. They will act yeah. as medical guinea pigs. They will do some scientific uh, experiments, as in they will be the experiment. Uh, but in large measure, it is purely the opportunity to go to the International Space Station for, you know, tens of millions of dollars. I mean, this is a much bigger price tag flying to the ISS compared to flying to the edge of space. But you will see space hotels. There's a number of differing organizations who have been working on this concept now for a number of years. Uh, Bigelow Space has, in fact, got an inflatable uh, module that's been attached to the International Space Station for about three years now as a prototype for their space hotel. We're not very far away from you, if you want, booking a ticket to an Earth-orbiting hotel. Wow, that's incredible. Uh, we saw when uh, uh, the Virgin craft landed, um, Chris Hadfield was there, Canadian astronaut, and you know, and officially declared uh, Richard Branson an astronaut. Is that too much? Are they really astronauts? Well, the definition of an astronaut is one that has never really been defined. I mean, we all yeah. think of an astronaut in terms of the 1960s model, if you will. Uh, you know, these are military people who have flown thousands of hours here on the ground, and they are trained for years on end to fly a fairly complicated process, uh, you know, vehicles and experiments into low Earth orbit or beyond. But that, that model has really changed over the years. There are now a lot of scientists who fly to Earth orbit and the International Space Station who don't necessarily have a lot of flying experience and are certainly not part of the military. So we're now talking about people who are able to uh, breach that 80-kilometer-high barrier. We're calling them astronauts. What their background is, what their uh, specializations, uh, what they are going to achieve at those heights and beyond... Does that really count for the definition of an astronaut? So I, I suspect we're going to have this discussion you know, uh, quite a bit over the next few weeks, months, and years. What do we define as an astronaut? NASA simply, carte blanche says, if you fly above 80 kilometers, we call you an astronaut. That arguably is the simplest uh, definition. You don't necessarily have to have any specialized qualifications. And based upon what Richard Branson and the crew of Virgin Galactic did yesterday, uh, you know, at the moment, all you have to do is put down $250,000 and be in reasonable health. <laughs> this was certainly one of the biggest, if not the biggest, news story next to perhaps uh, Euro 2020 over the weekend. Um, uh, and, and certainly has, has gotten a lot of people's attention. And, and I've talked to you over the years about how there's been interest in the space, and then it sort of diminishes, and it goes up again, and it diminishes and such. We also remember uh, the regularity of the shuttle flights, and, and eventually, you know, a civilian up there, and, and of course, the, the, the disaster that happened or has happened with those shuttles. Are we diminishing the, the, the safety of this? Are we diminishing the threat of this? by using this approach, by creating tourism? Or is that just a way to make this all safer? I, I think it's more likely a way to make it safer. All of these companies are keenly aware of the dangers that are involved. And let's face it, if we lost a group of space tourists in the early going, you can see ticket uh, sales diminishing rapidly. Yeah. 
so I think all three companies have taken a very cautious approach. I mean, this is 17 years in the making. It's not as if Virgin Galactic was formed yesterday and, and today they're flying. Um, they've had their share of, of traumas. They lost some people on the ground in 2007. They lost a pilot in the mm-hmm. air in 2014. They are keenly aware of the dangers associated with what they are doing. But equally, they are very committed to what they see as the next next step, if you will, in the human advances into the space environment. Uh, I think they are being cautious. I think they are being reasonable when we look at Blue Origin. You know, they've flown their new Shepard 15 times, reusable, perfectly successful. Uh, you know, when we look at the track record of SpaceX, the, the, the Falcon has flown 120 times. They have lost two, no people, but they have lost two vehicles. But that's a 98% uh, success rate. The maturity of the commercial space industry, I think, is has to be applauded. Uh, and as long as they continue to keep their eye on the safety aspect, and that's what groups like the FAA are there to do, to force them into that process, I think we will see more and more people gain confidence and you know, literally line up to buy those tickets. And uh, really quickly, we've only got about 30 seconds left. What are we going to see in the skies tonight regarding Mar- uh, Venus and Mars? Over in the western horizon, literally at sunset, so 9 o'clock, look straight west, good, clean, clear western horizon. Venus, really, really bright. Just underneath it, you'll probably need binoculars, is Mars. And smiling above it is a nice crescent moon. So it's a beautiful grouping in the western sky just after sunset. So 9 o'clock out there, have a good look at it. Lots of reasons to uh, get excited about space these days. Paul Delaney with a space exploration expert, professor of astronomy and physics, York University. Paul, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure, sir. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.